everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we are here today to talk to you about things you should have learned in school, but maybe didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about twine. (laughs) So this week, if you have not seen the celebrities recreating the Princess Bride thing, you absolutely should watch it. I don't think it's the whole thing available on the internet because it looks like it's a Quibi show, which is a streaming service that does nothing longer than 15 minutes. So it's from that. And I decided to see what else is on Quibi. And there's this horror show that's, you know, based on things in different states. And I discovered that Kansas has one of the variations on the world's largest ball of twine. And it's this little town in north central Kansas called Cocker. And so I started looking up Cocker and all this stuff. And for some unknown reason, I slipped into a Southern accent and could not get out of it any time I was reading something off of the Cocker Wikipedia page or website. And this town has a very large ball of twine, arguably the largest, and it is their entire identity. Like, if a different town made a larger ball of twine, it would crush them. Yeah, I thought I had seen the largest ball of twine. It was in a different state, and this was definitely bigger. And as I got farther into it, Cocker looks like the cutest little town. Like, the little area right directly around the ball of twine has some, like, little weird hotels. Like, one is a gas station and all this stuff. Then the farther out you get, the more you realize, oh, this is just a near ghost town situation. It's got a place to transfer money and a liquor store. So I bet most of their funds come from tourists, which made me tell Austin that next time we get to Nebraska, we have to stop and Cocker and we need to look around and buy some ball of twine tchotchkes and look at their terrifying doll in the win- that's in a window. Oh my God, the doll in the window. It's like, it's an Austin, look at this. And it's like, what is it? It's like, oh, because it was like in the background. And you can just kind of see it glaring at you from behind something. Yeah, in the foreground, it was this like representation of the guy who started the ball of twine. He was a baby doll for some reason, which was interesting. But in the background, when you zoom in, there is another doll staring at you. So yeah, but I slipped into the Southern accent and I couldn't get out of it. Even I'm, I'm reading it like this is the cutest town and I feel like I'm mocking it and I can't stop this. It was full on just fugue state of like, I need to, she could not help this accent. And anytime I had side commentary, the accent would go away. Yeah. So that was weird. I actually do have a real life Southern accent that I trained myself out of and it comes out when I'm extremely tired or a little tipsy. This was not the same accent. This was a different one. It was like something took over my brain. I have no idea what was happening there. So that was kind of the highlight of my week. What about you? Oh, gosh. Um, there was a puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my coworkers brought her puppy into work on Friday, and it pooped next to another coworker's desk, and that was awesome. Did you leave the poop there for the other coworker? She was there. It got cleaned up almost immediately. Oh, lame. But yeah, it was a cute little puppy. I finally got to live a lifelong dream, and I am now. I can now put professional dungeon master on my resume. True, true. Someone actually paid me to do, be a, like a nerdy, nerdy idiot who's bad at accents. Mm-hmm. And there was a pizza party at work. Yeah, but the pizza party is actually really cool. Because like usually there was actually a joke on Facebook that I saw earlier. That's if you're an essential worker, how has your how have your bosses told you how important you are and what kind of pizza was it? 
So when he told me they were getting a pizza party, my initial reaction was that. But it actually turns out it was a library patron who was just thanking all of these people for returning to work when how with how scary everything was. And she sent it to a lot of libraries. Yeah, it was a big, big pizza party. And I mean, even if it hadn't been as noble of pizza, I would have eaten it because I, I don't say no to free pizza. Like, if you want to kidnap me, it's not a van full of candy. It's a van with a it's like promise of pizza. You don't even have to have a pizza. It's like, hey, Austin, there's pizza in here. It's like, I won't get in that van. The happiest I've ever seen him was when on his birthday a couple years ago, I sent him a pizza at work. Yeah, I've got a problem. So yeah, that was really nice. So if you are a patron of a place that has essential workers, you don't have to go and send them pizzas, but be nice to them. They would would love a thank you card, anything. Just something that shows we recognize that you're putting yourselves at risk and we appreciate that you're doing that. Thank you. That's such a nice thing to do. And it was such a surprise. Yes, Like, we see all these things about send letters to people in nursing homes and all that, and that's great, but there are other people out there who could also just really use that kind of boost. Yeah, so next time you're at a store, and just be nice. You don't have to, like, make a big deal out of it. Just be nice. And wear your fucking mask if they tell you to. Yes. Don't be that person. Oh, and that's the whole other thing that's happening is our governor wisely said, we're going to hold off opening schools. And I was so excited. I mean, it's not enough. It's not enough. Like, there is no way in just three additional weeks to get the schools up to any reasonable safety standards. But it was a start. But apparently this executive order, for some reason, needs to be approved by the uh, the uh, State Department of Education. And some of them are sending back really nasty emails. People like all caps yelling run on sentence emails like Trump tweets. And they clearly they've made it very clear that they are happy to risk teachers and students lives for personal political gain with one of them being like well who's gonna do the harvest in june the migrant workers who come in and do the harvest in june the machinery that is used by the farmers that's like there is not like a nine-year-old with a sickle harvesting corn anymore there is a Mm -hmm. combination harvester that you don't even own it's just a crew that fucking comes in with a combination harvester harvests your corn and you pay them for it yeah and who's gonna do the harvest in june if the kids are dead Who's going to take care of your farm if your kid brings home it brings it home and kills your family? We now know for a fact that uh, basically around the age of puberty is when you become an adult-like carrier and transmitter. So 10 to 19 is considered an adult in these terms now. Basically, that's fifth grade and above. So under fifth grade, maybe there's a chance they're not as much of a carrier. But we also found out that over 80 babies have died in Texas, and there's a summer camp with over 80 cases and a YMCA camp with over 80 cases, and 30% of kids who tested got tested positive in Florida. So fuck all of this and leave the schools closed until it is safe. Teachers can teach effectively remotely. If that was not the case, YouTube would have like half the videos it has. I would never have learned how to install an outlet. Yeah, you won't. I don't think I would ever get as angry about anything political as I am about this. Because I was a teacher for so long. I know how unsafe schools are. I know how dirty they are. And it's not the fault of the custodians. They're understaffed and actually not legally allowed to do some stuff. The fact that people are willing to risk the lives not just of children, but of these high-risk adults, because most teachers are in the high-risk age or close to it. And so many teachers cannot share their physical or mental health conditions for fear of losing their jobs. We're going to have not just a rash of COVID deaths and effects, we're going to have a rash of suicides. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. Uh, Suicide is currently the number two cause of death in teenagers, the number 10 overall. And I don't know if I could live if 
my kids started dying like that when I was a teacher. I don't know that I could. And kids seeing their friends die, especially if a kid finds out that they were the carrier, what do you think is going to happen? That's as dark as I'm going to get. My topic's actually pretty lighthearted. Okay. I mean, other than the Holocaust parts, but... Oh, 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 good. Oh, <laughs> Well, good. Mine, mine doesn't have a, mine doesn't have any genocide in it. It does have some good old fashioned racism, but there's no actual genocide in mine. It's the after the generational after effects of genocidal events. Ooh. Yeah, I'm actually. I've actually wanted to talk about this for a while. I originally started to look at chaos theory, and then I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Because I am not a math person or a science person. Although this is all science this week, just like last week, and I'm like, "You lost me at fractals." I might still try to do it in the future because I, but I need to get like a book like Chaos Theory for Dummies. There are books of like quantum physics for babies at the library. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, maybe there's a Chaos Theory for babies. If there is, that seems about my ability level. If you want to bring that home for me, okay. <laughs> so let's let's get into it. My sources today are the University of Melbourne, Scientific American, Nature.com, The Atlantic, ScienceMag.org, Wikipedia, National Library of Medicine, and the Journal of New Approaches to Medicine and Health in School. And this was one of my favorite units. We learned about genetics and inherited traits and things like how'd you get your hair color and your eye color and why does cilantro taste like soap to some people and not to others and the whole hitchhiker's thumb things. Do you have hitchhiker's thumbs? We both do. Hmm. Interesting. Not really interesting. I think that's pretty yeah, common. Yeah, that's... Yeah, let's look at our thumbs. This is a great listening for the entire audience. Cilantro tastes like soap to you though, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. And it doesn't to me at all. So it's just... it's Genetics are so cool. So... I love learning about where these things came from and how you can find them on the DNA. And it all seemed so absolute. Anything you can inherit is in your DNA, right? Right. Except it's not. Really? Yeah, you can inherit things that have absolutely no DNA markers, but we know for a fact they are inherited. We don't know why or how. Ooh. So I am talking today about cellular memory and epigenetics, which are mostly the same thing, but not precisely the same thing. You'll hear them used interchangeably, and that's it's they're close enough that it's acceptable, as far as I can tell. It's the idea that memories and personality traits are stored in places other than the brain. They apply to both inherited traits that don't seem to have a direct chromosomal correlation, or it's not in your DNA, and to organ transplants and taking on stuff from those new organs. Randy L. Jertle of North Carolina, South, North Carolina State University describes epigenomes as a type of software that runs on the computer-like cell. The epigenome can affect lots of different cells, just as software can be run on many different computers. The big thing here, and I've mentioned this already, epigenetics and cellular memory leave no trace on DNA. We can look at DNA and go, okay, this person is blonde. We cannot look at DNA and see the things that I'm going to be talking about. Okay. But we know they're inherited, and it's it's just crazy. So I talked on a previous episode, uh, uh, our phobia, uh, the phobias episode, about how kids seem to be born afraid of the monsters in the closet. And the only reason I call them monsters is because we gave them that name. Otherwise, they there'd be something in the closet they were afraid of. Nobody told them, there's something in your closet, good night. That's not environmental. That's inherited. Where on your DNA does it said be afraid of the dark? Well, I know I told my sister because I was a great older brother. It's like, hey, there's something in the closet, be afraid of it. But. Yes, but most, especially first children, they don't have parents or guardians who are like, be afraid of your closet. Now, granted, if it was me, I would absolutely tell my friend, my kid to be afraid of the closet because I was afraid of the closet and there are definitely monsters in every single closet. But we're born just being afraid of these things. And there's no reason to be afraid of them at, on a most basic level. This is an inherited idea. 
that no one taught them. The idea that not all inherited characteristics are related to DNA has been around for decades. Initially, it was incredibly controversial, and it's still controversial today, as scientists thought that it was in direct dispute with Darwinism and was more like the ideas of Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, and his ideas are called Lamarckism. Fun fact, he, inver- he invented the word invertebrate. Ooh. Yeah, he actually did most of his studies on invertebrates, it looked like. Lamarck had two ideas. One is that body parts, like organs, change or e- are even eliminated based on their frequency of use and the environmental factors that cause this. Uh, like why birds in one environment have beaks and another one have bills, which sounds a lot like Darwinism to me. Yeah, the second idea, to make it clear, was that environmental factors cause this. So things that are almost identical in different places will have different adaptations based on the environment, not the fact that they're related. Getting into Lamarckism and Darwinism is a whole other thing, but Lamarckism is for some reason commonly tied to the idea of eugenics. People are often like, oh, well, Lamarckism started eugenics. It actually wasn't. Darwinism was more commonly linked to it. And in fact, his family was actively involved with eugenics. Darwin's family? Yes. As far as I could tell, Darwin himself was not. But members of his family were actively pro-eugenics. Using Darwin's theories to guide this. There, and then I read about the giraffe controversy surrounding Lamarckism, and I couldn't figure out why it was controversial. Because it's basically giraffes' necks grow based on how high the trees are near them. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wasn't saying they're growing as they, like, they don't adapt midlife. It's the next generation is born with longer necks. And I'm like, isn't that kind of what adaptation is? Kind of, but not totally. Like, and also, I gather the whole thing is completely misconstrued when they're talking about it. So we know that this kind of stuff happens over thousands of years. But we also know now that it seems to be able to happen over individual generations. And I don't just mean physical traits. I mean mental, uh, not mental illnesses, not mental disabilities, states of mind and ideas can be passed over just one generation with no education causing it. One of the most famous pieces of evidence is in Descendants of Holocaust Survivors. I told you it was coming up. Obviously, the Holocaust changed the people who experienced it. And it wasn't just the constant fear they were in, it was also the malnutrition and all of that. A research team in the Bronx studied survivors and found that they had different levels of stress hormones permanently when compared to Jewish adults of the same age who had not been in the Holocaust. They also had lower levels of cortisol, which is an important hormone that helps your body return to normal following a trauma. So people who have lower levels of cortisol tend to have things like PTSD. And actually, people with PTSD seem to have the lowest level of cortisol of all other diagnoses. Your body and your brain simply can't fully grasp that the trauma is gone, and it's always kind of in a fight-or-flight-ready state. They also found that those who were younger, when they were involved with the Holocaust, when they were victims of the Holocaust, had even more problems in this direction. So the older ones, the adults, were able to better maintain the levels of cortisol. Basically, the younger ones theoretically developed less of an enzyme that breaks down cortisol, so the cortisol was actually more abundant uh, since it helps with organ functions. I'm not a scientist, but if I understood correctly, basically the body stopped wanting to break down cortisol because it was helping their organs stay alive, and then it kind of overcompensated afterwards and broke down too much cortisol, if I understood all of the science words correctly. A study was later done in the children of these Holocaust survivors, and it was discovered that they also have lower levels of cortisol, particularly if the mothers had PTSD. This is despite the fact that the uterus is actually designed to regulate the amount of cortisol transferred from the mother to the fetus. Weirdly, the children still had higher levels of that enzyme, and it's believed to be a, an in utero adaptation, since the mothers had low levels of the enzyme causing more... 
it's so complicated, guys, because there's less enzyme and more enzyme and less cortisol and more cortisol. But at the end of the day, the mothers had less cortisol and then the babies developed a high level of the enzyme. Science people, if you want to explain this to me, our Twitter account is at on the test pod. I hope I'm getting at least the ideas across in some way. Um, but basically, they had more of the enzyme and they ended up having too much cortisol broken down, which caused permanent lower levels of cortisol because the enzyme levels remained too high. So in the mothers, the levels were too low, but then overcompensated. In the babies, they were permanently too high, making it so that the cortisol didn't happen, basically. Traditionally, inherited traits are to prepare fetuses for the environments their parents lived in. If your parents lived in a food-scarce environment, for instance, your body should develop the ability to live with less food. However, this transmission did the opposite. The children of Holocaust survivors would be significantly less likely to survive a Holocaust-like event than their parents were. Similar issues were found in the children of male POWs. Now, this is important because our, this can be pretty easily explained by something happened with the mother's body chemistry. I'm talking about males only here, meaning that they could not have had this happen. This was something that happened from the sperm itself transmitting into this egg. The... Children of male Civil War POWs died younger. This did not happen to the female offspring. Only the male offspring of huh. Civil War POWs. Weird. So it's almost like the brain or the body was sending through this message saying, you're going to die. And the body was like, okay. Randy Jurdle, who I mentioned earlier, says that we actually possibly still see the results of this in the modern southern U.S., because the South had a worse uh, time during the Civil War, higher food sh shortages, more famine, everything was terrible. He said it's either the stress of war or malnutrition or both. The stress in the system moves the machinery to put down or not put down epigenetic markers. And that lack of food or safety may have influenced the understanding and ability to process these things today, like physically process or the ideas of this were transmitted which is why the South actually has higher problems with nutrition today than the North does. This is over a couple hundred years now that this has this these markers have been passed on either initially and then the markers went away and the education just still wasn't there or the genetics are passing on and we just don't know which. And so they think part of it is that they, and again, I'm not saying Southerners are fat. This is what they're saying. Um, there are higher levels of, of obesity in the South and in the North, and they think this might be because they are pre-programmed to think, I need to eat more just in case the food goes away. Wow. Now, still, we could probably pass this all off as things are transmitted because the d DNA was altered and completely ignore the fact that DNA has no visible signs of being altered, right? Something, a science happens and things get passed on. But that doesn't make sense when we're talking about specific triggers and not overall levels of body hormones or things like that, which is what we were just talking about. So Brian Diaz, he was a student at Emory, Emory University when he began to study mice and their offspring. He used a variation in a Pavlovian response in which he exposed the mice to the smell of acetophenone and then shocked them over the course of only three days. He did this 15 times total to these mice. They began, of course, to express fear when they smelled acetophenone, uh, even when there wasn't a shock. He then mated these mice with unexposed females, again, meaning that there is no chance of some kind of intrauterine transfer. Their offspring and the offspring's offspring showed fear reactions when exposed to the smell of acetophenone. They had never experienced the shocks themselves, Ooh. but they smelled acetophenone and they had a fear reaction. Cool. Mm -hmm. He discovered, too, that all three generations, so the ones that experienced the shocks, their offspring and the offspring's offspring, all three generations had larger than normal structures where neurons are sensitive to this specific smell 
in their noses, not in their brains. Their brain was not altered. Their actual body was altered through this kind of cellular memory situation. The cells knew to grow differently. That's awesome. Yeah. So this is pretty solid evidence of environmental information being passed on, not just with actual changes in the amounts of hormones and whatnot. Uh, Diaz said the response was over, the overwhelming response has been, well, but how the hell is this happening? Another mouse study that has been going on since 2001 under Isabel Bensui, a researcher in Zurich, wants to find out the results of trauma from loss and forced separation and if they are transmitted from generation to generation. So she began by studying the effects of female mice and their babies through separations and found that the babies had altered behaviors as an adult when their own behaviors and then their own behaviors influenced their young and so on. So we see this uh, in human beings. If a child is in an abusive situation or has lots of unexpected upheavals and away from their parents, such as incarcerations, they will behave differently as adults. Not universally, everybody's different, but statistically they will have different behaviors. And then they passed those behaviors into their young and their young and their young. She realized um, that she needed to stop having these be environmental behavior differences and she needed to make sure that these were actually genetic. So to eliminate the possibility of the trauma reactions being caused externally, she studied the male line and bred male mice who had undergone the trauma with female ones who had not, again to eliminate the possibility of changes in hormones and other structures. Then he, she kept the males out of the cages with the families to eliminate the behavior changes towards the young, which is pretty normal. Female mice and their offspring do not need a male mouse around. Like, that's just not a thing that happens anyway. She then raised the mice after weaning in mixed groups. So groups uh, from litters that had had these, this genetic background and groups from litters that had not so that they could not be directly influenced only by their own litter mates. Scientists are so smart. She found that the symptoms of the separation trauma has continued for at least six generations. Descendants of the fathers who were separated from their mothers have displayed risk-taking behaviors and depressive behaviors at much higher rates than their peers who did not have these backgrounds. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And again, no DNA markers. There is no altered DNA that can explain this. Obviously, it's all controversial. Other scientists think that the results have been overblown or even falsified. These are peer-reviewed studies. Hmm. Come on, science. However, many think that more study is needed more than anything else, other than fully dismissing it. Tracy Bale, a neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania, says, It's pretty unnerving to think that our germ cells could be so plastic and dynamic in response to changes in the environment. Which I think might be a reason for some of the resistance. We don't want to think this is a possibility. But it kind of makes sense if we, like, you know, we are living beings in a changing environment, which, I mean, it can change drastically over a course of years or months and just suddenly. It would make sense that we'd have, over time, developed some sort of adaptation to allow us to adapt. Yeah, an adaptation, yes, but it doesn't make sense that a single traumatic event should be able to pass on those fears to your offspring. And we've seen it too, because in humans, we can say, well, they're being raised by somebody who experienced this. We've seen this in adopted people. They were raised, they, I mean, to use the mice, they smelled acetaminophen, they freaked out. In humans, they would experience something related to what their parents' trauma was. They'd freak out and their adoptive parents would have no idea why. So we see this even in human beings. And we can't really study it, study it in humans because it would be unethical. We can't force a human to go through a trauma that would qualify to the level of trauma the scientists would want to study. And we can't force them to give up their offspring and then have their children raised in a completely controlled environment. So we have to do these studies on animals because we have to. Most studies have been done that have been done on people have been done on people who were either raised by the parents who experienced the trauma or who were raised in traumatic situations just in general. We can't control what happens in their lives. You could have, but we do know that people who had the 
best childhood, even with parents who experience trauma, have these fear responses, have higher levels of PTSD, have higher levels of anxiety, have higher levels of depression. And they have been able to tie this more distinctly to people, regardless of the gender which parent it happens from, who had trauma in their own backgrounds. I'm sorry, I'm so excited about this. Like, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I am so excited about this topic because I think this is just the most fascinating thing in history. It isn't all negative, though. They've also found that in some cases, high stress in an adult can lead to better mental health in their future generations. It's just how much stress there actually is. So if you had consistent traumas, that level of stress is negative. Having, but having a, a consistent traumas caused by other people is more accurate. If you have consistent traumas caused by something like famine, your kids are actually more likely to be resilient when they get older. So it kind of comes down to people doing this to you on purpose seems to be the big issue because famine, I mean, yeah, governments are dicks, but nobody in general is saying, wahaha, I'm killing all the crops in general. Um, the supervillain crop duster would disagree with you. Ew. I don't think that's a real supervillain. If it is. It's not. Cool. Then I am. Claim- There's no, there is no way it is. Well, I am making it. You can see it in my new upcoming comic book. Um, It's also believed that if you know that there's trauma in the background that can be transmitted, the mother having perfect nutrition the entire time she's pregnant can stop, can seems to be able to stop these transmissions from happening. However, again, no way to enforce that, no way to regulate that. A problem with studying epigenetics is that it's because it's a software that can appear in any gene. So they don't even know where to look. These types of, these types of, traits like i mentioned they found them in enlarged stuff in a mouse's nose so at least they kind of knew smells related let's look at the nose but for things like i'm scared of the dark to an obscene amount and there's no reason why it could be in your fucking kidneys and they won't know and they won't know where to look so that's a big problem a major mystery remains as well fertilization is to use a phrase from the atlantic a power wash like process basically this kind of thing should all be cleared out during fertilization During fertilization, that's kind of when a lot of the adaptation happens. It gets rid of the stuff that's bad and leaves in the stuff that's good. So they can't figure out why the bad stuff is staying around because fertilization should eliminate it. So again, the key point, there are no DNA markers. We don't know what the fuck is happening. (laughs) So we know that trauma can cause issues in younger generations. And while we can't do a fully clean study of humans that allows for no environmental factors or parenting to control it, we do see the results in the mental and physical health. And we also see it in animals in controlled environments. But I told you I was going to get to the next thing. What's the next thing? Organ transplants. Organ transplants. Yes. So I want you guys want to think. This is not in your DNA. It is not in your brain. They don't know where to look for these markers. They don't know where to find how you have this memory that you should be afraid of the dark. No idea. So what happens when your organs end up in someone else's body? Like Dahmer style or transplant style? Transplant style, Dahmer style leads to whole other kinds of issues like being a cannibal and going to prison forever. Open Dahmer style. Get some long pig. (laughs) So organ donations. This idea that organ donations can change people expands on the idea that the software of inherited traits exists not only in the brain, but in the other organs. Cellular memory, as defined by the University of Melbourne, is the idea that memories and personality traits can be stored in any individual cells or in other organs, not just in the brain. We always learned that your brain controls your personality. That is, that was like a hard and fast truth in school. But so was the gender binary, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So we know that what we were taught, not necessarily true, and this might be the case here. A 2000 study looked at 10 heart and lung transplant, heart and heart lung transplant recipients. They talked to the recipients, their families and friends, and the donor families and friends. The age of the recipients ranged from seven months to 56 years. They discovered two to five parallels, meaning two to five changes in personality, preference, habits, and abilities in each case. In fact, one recipient even reported having recurring dreams of hot flashes of light in his face, which he'd never dreamt about before. His donor had been shot in the face. Oh. Yeah. However, with only 10 people study, they wisely said that Celia Remley was a suggestion from this, not an absolute. 10 people is not a big enough study to make a determination. That's just saying, hey, we're noticing a trend. Another study out of Vienna followed 47 heart transplant recipients over two years. 79% reported no changes. Interestingly though, they almost universally got incredibly defensive when asked about it and would either change the subject or tell the scientists that they were being stupid. Now, at a certain point, the lady doth protest too much. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot to me, like at least some of them are going, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. 15% said their personalities had changed, but they believed it was because of the trauma of having an organ transplant. Fair. 6% reported a massive change in personality, which they attributed to their new hearts and could not overcome and just had to, and just had decided to accept that this was part of their life now that they were carrying this other person's personality. And that was just that. Now, I do have to talk to this, talk about the skeptics because I do believe in showing both sides of an argument. They think that this could largely be coincidence or coincidence combined with some desire to allow their donor to live on or even out of a sense of survivor's guilt. Uh, so if you suddenly like salt and vinegar chips and you find out your donor did, well, now you think they're living on through me. It couldn't just be that your taste changed. You want to let them still be around. You have this feeling of responsibility. That makes sense. It could also be because during the rehabilitation process, people are being unconsciously influenced by the things around them. So if you get a transplant, and this was an example used by a surgeon out of the University of Michigan, you're watching a TV show that shows older adults rollerblading and you think, huh, that looks kind of fun. And then you forget about it. And then at the store a couple months later, you buy some rollerblades. And it's because you were unconsciously influenced and because you have this new organ, you can now do things that you couldn't do before. So sometimes people, then they find out that their transplant donor liked rollerblade and they attribute it to that rather than these unconscious influences. However, you cannot prove the unconscious influences happened. So that's, there, there are a lot of open-ended questions. However, and we can explain a lot of these changes through things like that. I would say that the majority probably are things like that, but some seem to be inexplicable. In 2006, a man in his 60s, and I, you know I love my lists of weird shit, a man in his 60s had no artistic ability until he received a new heart and was suddenly a very good artist. Uh, it turned out Donor was an artist. In 1988, a woman named Claire Sylvia suddenly wanted to drink beer and eat KFC, two things that she had hated previously, and it turned out her donor had been super into those things. Well, I hope this now, isn't a heart donor or a liver donor, because none of those things sound like they're good for you. Uh, doesn't say. Now, that alone could be attributed to the earlier stuff. But she also started having dreams about a man named Tim, who she had never seen or met before. And it turned out that it was her donor. Ooh. Then there was a foundry worker who got the heart of a 17-year-old black teen and suddenly loved classical music. Now, I'm a call him a racist. Being a racist, he said that it must just be one of those things. There's no way that my donor liked this. He was a 17-year-old black kid, so obviously he liked rap music. Uh. Well, the kid had been on his way to a violin lesson and got shot and was found hugging his violin as he died. 
That was apparently his favorite thing in the world was classical music and playing his violin. And then this one is like way fucking out there. An eight-year-old girl began to have repeat nightmares about the murder of her donor to the point where her psychiatrist actually said these might be memories of the murder itself. The vividness of the dreams, like she was able to 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 describe his face, describe the time, describe the date, and describe the location. They fucking caught, charged, and sentenced him. What? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So like explain that. Oh, it's like that movie we saw with uh, Jessica Alba where she gets the eye transplant and suddenly she can see ghosts, Mm -hmm. but real and I'm guessing not awful because that movie was awful. That movie was real bad. Um, This was awful. Can can you imagine being eight years old and suddenly having these nightmares? Yeah. Now, again, if you think I found this from shady sources, listen to my list of sources at the beginning of this. None of this is from like Sylvia Brown's website. I actually like have chosen to not go into any of the psychic or supernatural aspects of this because those are popular already. And also I like, I want to talk about science. Sadly, some recipients of transplants from suicide victims have attempted or completed suicide in the same manner of their donors with no previous indicators for suicidal thoughts. Oh. Yeah. Or some of them did begin after the transplant to do this. Now, again, we could attribute this to survivor's guilt. And I don't want to discount that because people who receive transplants do sometimes feel like someone had to die so that I could live. And there's a, there can be, not always, but there can be guilt associated with that. But the fact that some of them do it in the same manner, many of them do it in the same manner, and many of them don't have any indicators ahead of time, is a, is alarming. So if you know that you someone in your life had a transplant from somebody who died by suicide, keep an eye on them. Make sure they're okay. They probably are. Now the question is, how and why? There are some theories. Nothing has been proven. In 1994, the concept of a functional heart brain was introduced as it was found that the heart has its own nervous system with 40,000 neurons called sensory neurites. These words probably make more sense to you than they do to me. He's nodding. It's very helpful in a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I know what those words mean in this concept. Sorry, in this context. No clue. This allows the heart to act independently of the brain to a certain extent and can send and receive information through the autonomic nervous system. It's theorized that they can transfer memories as a result. A pharmacologist named Candace Pert introduced the idea that neuropeptides, which molecules released by the brain and body send brain send message to the body and affect the cells in which they become stored. So basically your memories get sent to other cells, the cells retain that information. Then there was a whole thing about electromagnetism and I couldn't tell if it was science or pseudoscience. And so I gave up because also I tried to read a study and I didn't understand a single word of it. But this one I mostly understood. One particularly compelling piece of evidence that memory can occur outside of the brain was in a series of studies done on flatworms that uh, flatworms are often used to study molecular mechanisms because they can regenerate their entire bodies. And most animals, if you cut off something, it's like a limb or a tail, they can grow it back. You can cut off their heads and brains. They grow back the heads and brains. Oh, that's cool. Like, are they immortal? How do they die? What the fuck is happening? I mean, they're a flatworm. It's not a complex brain. It doesn't change the fact, though, that they discovered that flatworms can learn and they have a long-term memory. Oh, cool. So there are flatworms out there who are better at learning things long-term than members of the public. Great. Yeah, they um, they believe the long-term memory is about 14 days, which is definitely longer than the public. Oh, my God. So in the 1950s, scientists discovered that they are trainable. So they train them to perform a task, remove their head. When they regrew their brains, they could remember how to perform the task. 
Cool. Uh... However, some attributed this to sense memory, like knowing how things feel rather than encoded memory, which is what we normally would call memory. So later studies showed that giving them two choices in a situation, teaching them to choose a particular one, allowed, um, allowed the worms to continue to pick that same one after they regrew their heads. So they remembered which one they were supposed to pick. But studies were dropped for a long time because they couldn't figure out how to ensure that sensory issues weren't playing a role. That's where Tufts University comes in. I read their study. I read the peer-reviewed paper that they wrote. On flatworms. On flatworm training, brain regeneration, and memory. Oh, uh, you poor thing. No wonder your head hurts. I have a super bad headache. Um, I think I understood about as much as a non-scientist could be expected to understand. Whoever wrote this did an amazing job. I understood at least 70% of it. Wow. Other than the um, actual computer words that they used to describe the system that they built, but that's a different kind of science. They created some kind of computer system that I don't understand because I'm not them, and basically made it so that there was minimal physical interaction with the scientists so that they could control the sensory input better, so they they weren't touching the flatworms. They didn't include any type of positive or negative stimuli um, in feedback to the animals the previous studies had. They created a petri dish with a rough floor surrounded by electrode walls. No idea what that means. They thoroughly cleaned it um, between each use so that there would be no smells from previous flatworms. If I understood it correctly, their worms were given many times to find their way to like food or light. Um, And then after many days of training them to find this food or light source or whatever it was, they chopped them, they chopped the heads off. It takes about 14 days to regenerate the head. They would do it again 14 days later. They were consistently able to find whatever they were looking for faster than the worms who had never been trained or decapitated. Cool. Now, you're probably imagining just a decapitated flatworm. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. They can regenerate so long as there's one 279th of them remaining. So this fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a centimeter can be remaining, if I know how long flatworms are anyway. And that can regrow their whole body and their brain. And they found that the results were largely consistent. That is awesome. Yeah. So there isn't a clear answer about if memory, as we think of it, exists elsewhere in the body. But we do know that there are things that are not encoded on our DNA that are passed down. We have no fucking clue why. And most scientists, and you know, scientists are like, yeah, we're going to prove this. Most of them are saying, we're never going to figure this out. Most of them are like, we admit that this is happening. We will never figure this out. And that's... That, I guess. That is nuts. Yeah. I told you it was long this time. But there, what what could I have left out? I don't know. Obviously, um... I, our... I skipped paragraphs while I was doing this. What? Yeah. Obviously, uh, th- this is, uh, this is science f- fiction bullshit. But I think we need to start cloning people and see if they've got memories. And, like, having them go through mazes. And I... Never mind. I've seen this movie. It's a young adult movie. It already exists. No, actually, though... I didn't read anything about that kind of stuff happening. And that would be really interesting to do. Like, we know we can clone fairly complex animals. So what if we did a Dolly the Sheep situation? I mean, I hate the idea of traumatizing an animal, but something like the smell and the shock and then seeing if the clone experiences the exact same thing. I mean, we've already learned all about things like twin telepathy. And I mean, we don't know why that happens either, but there is solid evidence for it. So and also would clones basically be like twins of just of different ages? I don't know. This is all stuff like, this is such an open-ended question. And I love learning about this. And I I love it when people, myself included, because you know how I am into paranormal and supernatural, people automatically want to jump to that. And I love when science gets on board. And science is like, okay, let's let's take a look and see if we can prove what's happening. And that's what's happening in this case. They're trying so hard to prove why these things are happening. And they've admitted that it's happening. And that is so fucking cool to me. 
Okay, so if we have any unethical scientists who are listening to our podcast, <laughs> um, I might suggest for your next project. Um, Don't you have a friend who's a science teacher? I do have a friend who's a science teacher. Hey, my science, I've got science teacher friends too. Hey, science teachers, you looking for a fun project to teach virtually this year? Your kids are in controlled environments right now, after all. That's true. Ooh. <laughs> and it's like you're having minimal physical interactions with them, so we can rule that out. Yeah, new, got- new argument for stay-at-home learning and quarantining is an unethical scientific study. It's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm experimenting on children, but don't worry, it's remotely. <laughs> The doctor turned around so he could have deniability. (laughs) Damn, I talked for a long time. You go, go, go. Oh, I gotta go? Okay, cool. Well, I'm gonna talk about something a lot shorter and a lot less technical and complicated. But aren't you proud of me for understanding most of the science? Yeah, very proud. I'm gonna talk about something, like this weird little footnote of history that happened 160 years ago. Mm -hmm. So... In 1853, Japan ended a 220-year period of isolation when four American warships sailed into Tokyo Bay, or Edo Bay at the time, as it was known. And in classic American fashion, we demanded peaceful negotiations by force. Sounds about right. So uh, this sparked quite a few things. First, battles. No, actually, uh, we basically said, hey, uh, evacuate this part of this place because we're going to shell it until you come out and talk to us. And we shelled it. Oh, we also presented them with a white flag to to display when they were done being shelled by us so they could come to negotiation tables. Oh, I thought for a second you were saying we tricked them with a white flag. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a oh, war crime. No, we said, it's like, cool, start waving this when you're, when you're tired of us uh, blowing stuff up. So on top of killing them, we were just being dicks. No, they evacuated the area. We just blew up stuff. It was... Were middle schoolers running this? Yeah, oh man, you read about... Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I love middle schoolers. But if they had a free space to blow stuff up in, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, the Perry, Perry going to Japan was crazy. So this sparked a few things. Uh, rapid industrialization because of this country that had been isolated for hundreds of years and had not really made any major advancements. Um, suddenly uh, went from basically a medieval feudal society to a dominant regional power and industrial nation in about a generation. So it also developed a bunch of simmering res- resentment towards the West, which would definitely not come back to bite us in the, for- in the 30s and 40s. And a civil war between traditionalists and modernizing factions that turned, we turned into a Tom Cruise movie for some reason. Top Gun. No, uh, <laughs> the, actually, yeah, Top Gun. Um, Maverick and Goose went to feudal Japan and became the last samurai. Austin had, I've never seen Top Gun and he explained it to me the other day as, what was it? Male privilege, male privilege, dick measuring, male privilege, homoerotic, basketball, male privilege? Homoerotic, volleyball. What did I say? Basketball. Oh. Very different sports. The net's completely different. Yeah, I meant volleyball. Yeah, Yeah, there was, uh, Top Gun is, uh, look how cool the military is, homoerotic volleyball. That's all it is. I at least need to see this homoerotic volleyball montage because I've heard of it. I've heard tales told and I need to figure out exactly why it's being described as homoerotic. It'll take your breath away. Is that song played during it? No, but it's from that movie. Okay. (laughs) I wish. Okay. (laughs) People who are better at movies than me. Like just, I want. We need to get an iPad with iMovie just for this purpose. Yeah, I mean, just, all iPads have iMovie. Just, just don't start, have an iPad. Just start playing it. Like slow it down a little bit more, and just stay play. Uh, you take my breath away over the volleyball montage. <laughs> I think it'd take on a very different meaning. 
So yeah. And it also resulted in the first delegation that Japan ever sent to America in 1860. Wait, I didn't ask you questions. You did not ask me questions. We'll do it at the end. We'll do it at the end. We'll have a big question of thought. This will be your, this will be the test. Oh, it damn. will finally be on the test. Oh no. I wasn't paying attention at all. I'm not going to retain any of this. So, yeah, in 1860, Japan sent 76 samurai, interpreters, doctors, and support staff to America to finalize some treaties and do some ceremonies. You said 76, and I just immediately went to 76 trombones, led the big parade. In this this case, it was actually um, 76 samurai led a big parade in New York City. (laughs) Which might be, is this the inspiration to the music man? It could be. I mean, honestly, like, trombonists would probably be less obvious than samurai in New York City. Yeah. Assuming they're in full samurai gear, I don't know. Oh, they were absolutely in full samurai gear. Yeah, trombonists, probably less obvious. Yeah, they did a nine-month worldwide journey where they basically went all around the world and visited all of these countries because they'd been isolated for hundreds of years. So this is kind of a big diplomatic mission for Japan. Did statues crumble for them all around the world? No. Oh. Who I... knows how long I've loved you? <laughs> I mean, it depends on which of my friends you ask. <laughs> We've known each other for 17 years. We've only been together for a few. Yeah. But we, we were also in high school and everyone in high school is an asshole. Especially you kids. Especially me. Yeah. I was, I was kind of an asshole. Yeah. So anyway, they crossed the Pacific on the uh, USS Powhatan, but they were escorted by a modern, for the time, Japanese frigate built in the six years since their isolation ended, the Kanrin Maru. Uh, it is sometimes called the first Japanese Pacific crossing by an all-Japanese crew in a Japanese-constructed ship, but they had actually done three such journeys in the 17th century. So, like, you know, before their isolation, they'd actually crossed the Pacific. So, you know, the Japanese were in California before, like, you know, we were. No one was here when the white people got here, Austin, and no one got here first. It was just the English. Just the English. Oh, no. Christopher Columbus was first, and then the English. Nobody was here, Austin. Nobody was here. Kind of like, why should I wear a mask? No one's here. So, yeah, their first stop in America was in San Francisco. They stayed there for a month. Um, One guy actually bought a Chinese-English dictionary there and started working on an English-Japanese dictionary, the first one. Why did he use a Chinese-English dictionary for that? Because he he knew Chinese better than he knew English. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So then um, after they'd been in San Francisco for a while, they went down the coast, uh, went to Panama, where they went across Panama on a on, by, via railway. Was there a canal for them to use? Not yet. There this we is pre-canal. go. pre-canal. So you, you need the railway. Yeah, but why didn't they just go on the rail? I guess the, I guess the Transcontinental Railroad didn't exist yet either. So this was like the fastest way to get across. So then they went down. Then they got on board the USS Roanoke. I love it. I love it. And then they sailed Washington, D.C., where they had a series of receptions in their honor and a bunch of, like, you know, formal treaties, signings, and all of that junk. Uh, President Buchanan presented them with a watch engraved with his likeness as a gift for the Shogun. I forget that President Buchanan exists. Most people do. I hate the idea that he was like, here's my face as your gift. It's like, it's like, hey, everyone, I got you. Uh, welcome to my America. Here's my headshot. Pass this around your country. Maybe it'll get some interest. Maybe it won't. It's like, also, here's my mixtape. Yeah, this was... Also, Buchanan, not that great looking of a guy. I'll say it. It's like, isn't it traditionally... And I don't think it's this way anymore, but traditionally, didn't you bring them something that was like, here is something from my homeland? Yeah. And he's like, here's my face. Here is Which me. I guess is from the homeland, but it's not indicative of what the homeland is. Yeah, so this was like fairly normal diplomatic shit. I mean, nothing in, nothing so far has been very exciting. 
until they got to New York City. And they were, they became kind of a phenomenon. Because, you know, New York tried to portray itself for these visitors as the Edo of the West. There were multiple parades for them. Uh, they had a city hall reception and people loved it. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just so excited about these Japanese diplomats because... That would be exciting. It was exciting. And a major part of it was just the novelty of this. Wait, is this the episode that... Uh, is this what that episode of Parks and Rec is based on when the diplomats come in from... Uh, is it Venezuela? And he's like, for this crime, kill them. For this crime, we kill them. No. Kind of, but yeah. It's like... Because it was like, they were samurai. They were dressed um, strangely to the New Yorkers. They carried around swords. Uh, they they had their uh, heads partly shaved and their hair was up in top knots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people just generally didn't know anything about Japan. It mm-hmm. was just like, this was new. These were, these were, these were strangers in a strange land. This was, you know, a lot of it was a very kind of racist, like zoo exhibit, come look at the foreigners type of interest. Was this pre-Barnum? What year are we talking about? 1860. So this was pre-Civil War. Yeah. Barnum was right after. Yeah. Uh, their, their diet was also a big interest because people were asking, well, what do they eat? Food. Food. But actually it was different. They brought a lot of their own food with yeah. them because, like, you know, their diet was largely vegetarian, lots of rice, lots of soy sauce. I mean, like, I just read this thing about American expats living elsewhere, and the thing that they say they miss the most is the food. Yeah, so they brought their own food, and it was funny. They actually would largely go hungry at a lot of banquets because there was nothing that they could really eat because they stuck to a Buddhist-influenced, largely veg- vegetarian diet. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And, um, but they did develop a taste for champagne and ice cream. Who doesn't? Yeah. So they weren't completely abstaining of all Western food. They just... Well, I mean, both of those are vegetarian. Yeah. Gelato is eggs, but ice cream is not. I mean, yeah. Well, that's vegan anyway, so. And, of course... Walt Whitman was there. And he wrote a poem. Because of course he did. Although I've considered doing an episode about Walt Whitman just to discuss Two Roads Diverged. Because it's fascinating. Yeah. And I thought that was Frost. Was that for, Oh, no, I'm thinking... Walden, was that Walden Pond? No, Walden Pond was... And Thoreau. Right. Who was Walt Whitman? Who am I thinking about? I don't know. I just hear poet and I immediately go, oh. <laughs> well, you ready for his poem? Except for, uh, oh my God, I just, Rupi, Rupi Carr? Um, Rupi Kaur? Yeah. 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 I, that, I love her. Other than that. So listen, here we go. Ready for this poem? Oversea, hither from Nippon, which is like. Yeah. Yep. Also, oh, well, let's explain to them what. Yeah. Also, uh, another word for Japan. Do they still do, do Japanese people call it Japan or Nippon? Nippon. I think I think Nippon. That's uh, Japan. I think is what the Chinese called Japan. We occasionally or Jiaping, have. I think. I we occasionally have a Japanese listener pop up on our uh, on our stats. So if you're from Japan, let us know. Although we could Google it, I guess. Yeah, it's like this is a fact I learned years ago, but I'm not sure if I remember it very well anymore. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, courteous, the princes of Asia, swart-cheeked princes, first comers, geft guests. Two-sorted princes, lesson-giving princes, leaning back in their open baroches, bareheaded, impassive. This day they ride through Manhattan, when million-footed Manhattan, unpent, descends to its pavements, when pennants trail and festoons hang in the windows, when Broadway is entirely given up to foot passers and foot standers. Well, those are certainly all words. Those are words. Yeah, Walt Whitman wrote a poem about this, and it's not a good one. 
No, it doesn't even make sense. It's basically saying, look, there are people here. Yeah. Can't you just, just fucking say what you mean, poets. God, poets. Yeah. And of course, actually, one member of the delegation was like a pop star. Every The ladies were obsessed with him. The earliest days of J-pop? Yeah, he was He was the youngest member. He was 17. His name was Tateishi Onejiro. And the press nicknamed him, among other things, the Japanese prince. He was not a prince. No. He was actually a uh, apprentice interpreter. Like English to Japanese? Yeah. So um, the darling fellow, and because this is America and there's no way we're going to learn how to pronounce a foreign name, they called him Tommy. <laughs> Okay, though, can we bring back the word darling in a non-condescending way like that? Because that doesn't seem condescending. That seems oh, like, no, they were... Like, that kind of seems like, oh, look, that face is darling. And it means it in a nice way as opposed to now it's like, darling, let me explain this to you. Yeah. Young ladies were actually following him up the coast. Oh, poor kid. And they were obsessed with him. They would ask for his autograph. They would want photographs with him. There's and it actually, took 20 minutes because it was the 1800s. Yeah, it's like, there are lots of photographs of young ladies with Tommy. Looking very uncomfortable, I'm sure, Tommy. A huge, a, it sounds he, like he, he love loved it? it. Oh my god, that's even better. Okay. You know, good for you, kid. Go go and, go and enjoy that, because you're a fucking samurai, and your yeah. life's going to be hard. Yeah, the press described him as being pursued by a light brigade of young women. A light brigade? A light brigade. Huh. <laughs> they even wrote a hit polka about him oh my god that's the best the the tommy polka and it was the tub thumping of 1860 okay i just gotta throw in here because you mentioned polka and then a 90s song my great grandmother knew how to polka and she went into you're you're visiting my grandparents and she was also there she went into my brother's room and he was listening to blink 182 not something you want your late 80s early 90s great grandmother to be listening to necessarily right and she is this proper uh, Canadian expat Boston Catholic woman. I fucking loved her. She was awesome. And she walks in there and she's like, what are you listening to? And he kind of like hems and haws and tries to turn it off. And she goes, no, 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 no. This is polka music. Listen to it. This is polka. And she like kind of does, you know, this thing to show him is polka. She goes, well, if you're going to be listening to it, you might as well learn to dance to it. And taught my brother to polka while listening to Blink-182. <laughs> Is Blink-182 even in 3-4 time? I'm trying to remember what their songs are. What's My Age Again? What's My Age Again? Yeah, that actually kind of, I think it might, I don't remember I don't remember song what goes. song he was yeah. listening to, yeah. but. So, I'm going to read you the lyrics from this song, and I apologize in advance to everybody. I These lyrics do not reflect my, review, my views as a modern American. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So, yeah, this is not reflective of our views, the views of our workplaces, and the views of three out of our four cats. Yeah, it's... And it's so, uh, wives and maids by the score are flocking round that charming little man known as Tommy, witty Tommy, yellow Tommy from Japan. Uh, sorry. Um, here's another note. In 2010 at the 150th- Not even clever. No. <laughs> and again, it's, it's like the poem. Look at the people. Look at the people. Yeah, it's, we're like- this was like a dark age of music and literature. We'll just we'll just brush by it. Uh, here's a note: in 2010, at the 150th anniversary, uh, Mamoru Takahara, the music director of the New York Symphonic Ensemble, recorded this mostly lost piece as part of this like 150th anniversary celebration and this exhibit they had with all like the photos and stuff about this time. So, can you find it like on YouTube? Yeah, you can actually listen to this in this orchestral arrangement of it. Um, the lyrics and singing are not a part of it. <laughs> 
Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, this, as you can guess, this diplomatic mission was ridiculously romanticized. Sure. It's like, they they describe them as the all-sword-wielding samurai and members of military nobility. But in reality, they were a humble group of bureaucrats who were at times condescending about the cultures they encountered. Sure. In fact, they were like so rude and dismissive of Americans that they might have actually been more a little bit ruder and more racist than Americans were in this culture exchange, largely. Not that Americans weren't racist, because there was a lot of ugly racism that was prevalent through this entire exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, another big factor of this popular explosion and all this popularity was because of Townsend Harris. He was the American Council General to Japan, and he promoted the hell out of this in New York because he was doing it to raise his own status. I feel like we've talked about him before. Maybe he's come up in my research and didn't get missions. I don't know. That name's yeah. familiar. And of course, um, he also wanted to get the government to foot, foot the bill. Yeah. So if this got like, you know, if there's enough popular support, they would gladly pay it rather than like begrudgingly give like 20 bucks. Wait, so who was paying for this? <laughs> America, but now, like, I guess they're paying for more of it. For, okay. like, the extravagant balls and everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, after two weeks, they left New York City to complete their world tour, and they just circumnav- circumnavigated the globe and then returned to Japan. But upon their return, things weren't especially great for them. Um, some, Several of them had converted to Christianity. Oh, no. And... Um, Uh, They were accused of being westernized and were kind of shunned to an extent. And, um, and of course, when the Meiji Restoration occurred and there was like a kind of that little civil war and that revolt between the traditionalists and the modernists, um, uh, the shogunate lost power and some of them remained loyal and were beheaded. Remained loyal to the shogun? Remained loyal to the shogun. Uh, What happened to Tommy? I was about to get to that. uh, Tateishi Onojiro or Tommy, continued as an interpreter, oversaw Japanese immigration to Hawaii, and worked on the Osaka Appellate Court as a translator, and he died in 1917. You go, Tommy. Yep. However, there was another guy on this expedition who I didn't know about, who is basically the Japanese Benjamin Franklin. So he had syphilis? Probably not. (laughs) But, like, this was uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi. He published the first English-Japanese dictionary. He founded a school of Western studies that eventually became a major university, the Kaio Gijuku University, Japan's oldest institution of higher learning. Um, He was an advocate for women's rights. Now, again, this was like 1860s women's rights. Mm -hmm. He wanted husbands and wives to be equal and women to own property. But he was still against like unmarried women, like, you know having full rights and he didn't think that education was good for women yeah it's actually fascinating when you look back at historical things like that because on the one hand you want to praise them for being incredibly progressive for their time on the other hand it's like but you didn't get it all like that's that's why context Mm -hmm. matters yeah so he was like again for as like a traditional country as japan was at this time that was very radical and is a big step forward he also encouraged people to love their daughters as much as their sons yes um, uh, he founded the Institute of Infectious Diseases in Japan. <laughs> I'm sorry, the way it's phrased, it's like, this is where the infectious diseases come from. 
Yeah. He was a powerful voice for reform in Japan. He founded an early newspaper and was really helped popularizing in westernization and moving from extreme conservative to being more moderate and tolerant of change. Um, he is regarded as one of the biggest shapers of modern Japan. Wow. He actually got a lot of his influence from uh, reading about European-style democracies and also Benjamin Franklin was kind of, was an influence of his. And he, however, might have helped shape Japanese imperialism. Yeah. Which is not great, but it sounds like he still did a lot of good and like a lot of positive change for a, for a country. That comes up on here a lot where it's somebody does all these positive things, but it also causes directly or indirectly these negative things. Yep. And he, he could actually be his own episode. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating guy. And that was the 1860 uh, Japanese embassy. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Didn't know about it. No. It was wild. Japan in our history classes didn't show up until World War II. It just yeah. did, it just popped into existence. Yeah. That's, yeah. J- Japan, remarkable story of like just industrialization and adapting to just a new thing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Just really neat. So are you ready? Are you ready for my questions? Yes. Okay. Will Admiral Perry be on the test? I've already forgotten who that is. He's the guy who uh, who, pr- who brought diplomacy by force. I guess he'd have to be. Yeah. Will Tommy, Tommy is in quotations, oh, yeah. be on the test? Oh, yeah. Tommy's on the test. Will the lyrics of the Tommy Polka no. be on the test? Wait, what year are we talking about this test being in? Because when we were growing up, absolutely, we would have had to memorize it and sing it for a concert. Oh, God, we would have. And will Fukuzawa Yukichi be on the test? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was... My little thing. Are you ready for my questions that I forgot? Yes. I just—I was so excited about my topic and it just went out yeah, of Yeah, the, enti- the entire conceit of our <laughs> podcast. Gone. My topic was awesome. Your to- topic was great. <clears throat> all right. Will the fact that not all inherited traits show up in DNA be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that trauma responses can be inherited be on the test? No, because you don't want like kids who have been in trauma. So it's like, yeah, there's like, oh, you're just going to be screwed up and nothing can help it. Well, it's also, it's scary because if you're an adult who has lived through trauma, this could make you think maybe I shouldn't have kids because what if I pass it on? It's not a guarantee, guys. It's not a guarantee and environment and parenting still has a major effect on things. And if you're really healthy while you're pregnant, that can help too. Will the fact that not all non-DNA traits can be explained by environmental or biological factors during pregnancy be on the test? I'm going to say no, just because that was really complicated. I can't see this being on anything short of a graduate level test. And will the flat fact that flatworms are fucking nightmare fuel be on the test? Oh yeah, absolutely. Kids need more nightmares. They're so scary. I didn't even want to look at pictures of them because anything that can grow its brain back, I'm not on board. I am not on board. It's like, see, you need to be more like jellyfish. They don't even have a brain to grow back. So what is something you learned? I learned that you can decapitate a flatworm and it will still remember stuff. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? Which was totally the point of my entire piece. Yeah. Not the fact that stuff can be inherited that's not on your DNA. Nope. Yeah, I mean, I already knew a little bit about epigenetics, which is like... Because of the William Shatner show. Because of the William Shatner show. And, well, um, because I've got a family history of Alzheimer's and I think that's got a big epigenetic link. So I've kind of read a little bit about it. Okay. So it's like, you know, you have a genetic predisposition towards this, but there's environmental factors that we don't really entirely understand that can trigger this. So it's a slight link to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? Okay, this may seem like a little thing from your entire piece, but I learned that in 1800s America, people were actually pretty chill about the girls thinking that this Japanese guy was cute. Yeah. Like, all we ever learn about is racism. And granted, God, if one of them had married him, it probably would have been... 
a problem. Uh-huh. But I mean, it's like there, I think there's a difference between bringing this samurai home with you and flirting with him and in a ball. I'm sure that there's a level of exoticism, exotic, you know, uh-huh. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Attached to it, but the fact that it was considered kind of, and they didn't treat him like he was stupid or some kind of, you know, I mean, they were all obviously tokenized during this, but like he was some kind of subhuman, oh, look at these girls with their stuffed animal kind of situation. They're actually like, this is so like fascinating that these girls are all attracted to this one guy. I I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay. So since we are a more or less history podcast, we would be remiss if we did not mention the fact that we lost John Lewis this week. Neither one of us got to learn about him in school to speak of. Yeah, I didn't learn much about John Lewis until I read the um, graphic novel series March, which I've recommended that on this podcast before, and I'll recommend it again. Read March. John Lewis was a wonderful man, and the world is a suckier place with him gone. Yep. So we considered scrapping our topics for this week to talk about him, but we also didn't want to not do him justice by doing three hours of research. So I'm not saying we'll definitely cover him next episode, but he will be covered in the future. We just didn't want to not do him justice, but it is, he, he mattered both as a historical figure and as a person. Yep. And the fact that Republicans are posting pictures of quote, the wrong black guy is kind of disturbing. Yeah. They're posting pictures of Elijah Cummings who died in October or November. October, I think. And, uh, so we're, captioning it as john lewis and it's like oh yeah so we lost him this week major major civil rights figure movement of the uh, major civil rights movement figure and it's a shame that neither one of us learned about him in school it was all mlk all the time and i'm not saying mlk is not important but we didn't learn about john lewis or clara looper or fanny lou hamer or any of them yeah and that's something that needs to change where can they find us? Why they can find us uh, on Twitter at on the test pod, on Instagram at on the test pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod, and at our website on the test pod.com. I can't remember if you mentioned Instagram. We're also I did on mention the test Instagram. Pod. Basically, if you type in on the test pod, it's probably us. Look or- look for the statue with the face palm. That's us. Yep. And we're here every Tuesday. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies. Give us a rating, a review, and a subscribe. Five stars only, please, though, because otherwise I'll cry. Or, you know, if you are uh, one of the special elite users, give us a six-star review. (laughs) And on that note, class class dismissed. dismissed.